I'm going to give you some difficult questions. Let's see if how difficult these are to answer. All right, here's a few of them. First one, why could Superman stop bullets with his chest but always ducked when someone threw a gun at him? It's a difficult question. You have an answer for that? All right, we're just warming up. Let's try the next one. Do one-legged ducks swim in circles? Anybody know? Number three, if the cops arrest a mime, do they have to tell him that he has the right to remain silent? <laughs> Number four, what do sheep count when they can't sleep? <laughs> Five, what's another word for thesaurus? I like that one. That one's slowly catching on, right? And then number six, if a man speaks and his wife is not there to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> oh, that's a terrible question. Terrible, terrible, terrible. That is marriage problems right there. But guess what? Guess what our topic is today? As we return to the fourth major discourse teaching section in the book of Matthew, we are right in the middle of that over these six-week section here. Jesus is teaching us today about marriage, divorce, singleness, and grace. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be in the first 12 verses. If you don't have a bulletin with the sermon notes, raise your hand. Ushers will put one in your hand. I always find those helpful to follow along. So like I said, we're, we're going to take six weeks on this part, portion of, of Scripture from Matthew chapters 18, 19, and part of 20. It's the long discourse where Jesus, that records Jesus' teachings on lots of different dynamics in our kingdom family. And he's been answering tough questions. The first two weeks, uh, we looked at his answers to the questions, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then last week, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister in Christ? And the questions get harder as we go. The third question by the Pharisees in today's text is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Today we're going to study Jesus' teachings on some difficult and timely topics, marriage, divorce, singleness, his gospel of grace. There are some big battlegrounds in our world and our culture on these issues. They're issues that have some room for different positions. But there are also issues that have experienced a tremendous amount of twisted views. Let's seek Jesus' truth in all of these areas that we cover today, my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' kingdom family. The first is that God designed marriage. God designed marriage. Creator God knows what's best for marriage because he designed it. He created us. He created marriage for his purposes and design. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who we just sang about, all the heavens, all the angels adore him. He is worthy. He's the king of all kings. And in Matthew 19, he solidifies the definition of marriage for all time in his discussion with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce. Let's look at the setting here in the first two verses. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. That's on his last trip to Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. I just want you to note here that just not long from now, he's going to be hanging on a cross to pay for all of our sins. 
And right up towards the end of his ministry, he's still engaged in his mission of demonstrating his compassion for people and his, his authority over all things. But here come the challengers. Verses 3 and three through 6. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're trying to trap him here. He answered. How's he going to answer? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees, all along, they hated Jesus and they hated his followers. And they're always trying to agitate and trick and trap him. This was a trick question to try to trap Jesus in a tangled net of political and theological and practical and biblical controversy. Just like those topics create for us today. But little did they know, they were not talking to an amateur student of the Old Testament law. They were talking to the author of the law itself, himself. And to answer their question, notice that Jesus did not go back to the law. He went way before the law was ever given. He went to Genesis 1 and 2 to the creation of the world for his answer to their question about divorce in the law. This is noticeable. He went back to the creation of the world because he was there. And he knows. He was involved. He can attest to God's original purpose and design for marriage. So what's he going to say? Look closely at what he says about marriage, starting first with the fact that he created humans in two genders, male and female. You're probably not surprised to hear that there's a little bit of a controversy around this issue in our world today. There is a massive heated debate in matters of sexuality, homosexuality, gender spectrum, gender identity. It's more important than ever for us to know the truth and state the truth that God created male, humans in male and female, and he did so intentionally. And it's important for us to stand on that truth and not succumb to those who want to reject God and remove God and replace God. Jesus quotes from the creation account in the first and second chapters of, of Genesis in the Bible. And when we go back to the beginning of God's created order, we see that divorce was not a, a part of his original intention. Nor was same-sex marriage, of course. What do we see in the words of Jesus about same-sex marriage? Did you notice that it's there? All right, let's, let's talk about it. Because over the years, you've heard this line of, of reasoning. Uh, well, Jesus never addressed same-sex marriage, and so he must be okay with it. And we've heard that a lot. And you know a lot of Christians, when you hear that, and maybe in conversation, you're a little bit stuck. You're like, oh, well, I don't really know what to say about that. Well, here's what to say about that. Yes, he did address homosexuality. As we just saw, first of all, Jesus answered with Genesis 1 and 2. He did that for a reason, because Genesis 1 and 2 proclaim God created humans in male and female, and the reasons he created us in two genders are for procreation, illustration, and sanctification. Three big words, let me tell you what they mean. Procreation, he's making babies. That's, that's an easy one. 
illustration, he created marriage because all of our marriages give a picture of two in one. That's a picture of God's own character. Three in one. The oneness. Further, it's a picture of Christ's love and relationship for his bride, the church, who will be presented to him in the end. This is what our marriages illustrate. And then sanctification is our process of making holy. We become holy in our marriage, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Jesus also made it very clear that what God has joined together, man should not separate. So God created marriage. He gets to define it, not humans. So any other type of marriage is not a marriage. It's, it's another thing. So By definition, same-sex marriage goes against why Jesus explained his created process, why he created marriage. And this is the bigger issue. I said Jesus created it. Yes, Jesus is God. He is part of our eternal, eternally existing triune Godhead. God the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God manifested three, in existing in three persons. He is the Son. We called him Jesus when he became a man 2,000 years ago. But he always existed in three persons. This is the God of the Bible. You cannot separate Jesus from being there at the creation. He is the word of God. He is John 1. He is the word speaker. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. Colossians 1 says he is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He was there. He was there at the creation. He was there at marriage. He was there at Sodom and Gomorrah, raining fire down from heaven. Jesus is the author, the the divine author of Leviticus, the written law of God, which condemns homosexual behavior. So you can't say that Jesus never addressed this issue, unless you're going to say and argue that Jesus is not God. And I implore you not to do that in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is God. We know this truth and stand on it, but we also need to know where our country is on this right now. We're given the mission of being lights, leading people to the way, the truth, and the life uh, in the place where we live. So what is the condition where we are right now? Let's talk about that. And I want to refer to Carl Truman, who's a British professor and author of the, the new book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. He's an excellent thinker and writer. And he, I'm just going to read a little bit of what he explains. He says, there is a clear connection between the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the growing rejection of religious freedom. An early time this caught news headlines was in 2015 when the Indiana State Legislature, we made it, uh, proposed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was in part designed to protect the rights of business owners with religious objections to LGBTQ lifestyles with regard to hiring policies. The proposal met condemnation, most significantly from corporate America. In the end, then Governor, uh, Indiana Governor Mike Pence signed a watered-down version of the original bill into law, but a message had been sent. Significant sectors of the culture no longer considered religious objections to LGBTQ matters to be anything more than bigotry. It's worth reflecting on that for a moment. The Supreme Court enters and dismisses thousands of years of held and shared belief as nothing more than irrational bigotry. This is our world. 
that we live in now. God's design and purposes for marriage and gender are no longer the assumed values of our country as they had been since its beginning. We are basically living in ancient Corinth now in our society. But that's okay. Ancient Corinth and places like it have been around. They're the, they're the time and culture that Jesus entered our existence. It's where the New Testament and the church began. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has been entering civilizations like this and transforming them for the last 2,000 years. And the gospel is still the answer. As Christians and churches leave that behind, it doesn't help matters at all. And so we aim to not do that. So how do we live then? Like, how do we live in a culture that's changing like this? We live like Christians always have and always should have. We follow and obey and proclaim every word of Jesus. And we enjoy that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the life that he is. Truth will always win out in the end, but Jesus is also love. He's the creator and the author of it, the source of it. And that's another way we need to respond is to love like Jesus does. So we also need to know how the word love has been manipulated and misunderstood now. The argument today is it's kind of a redefinition of the word love. That you ha- in order to be loving, that means you have to approve and celebrate all positions and ideas as equal, as equally valid, because love accepts everything. But that's not the definition of love. That's not even close to God's definition of love. God's definition is to love somebody is to lay down your life for their good. To lay down your life for their good. And their best good, everybody's best good, our best good, everyone's, is to repent of sin and sinful lifestyles that God condemns outright. It's to lead people away from the eternal cliff that they're heading into with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gives eternal life and heals and restores and makes new. This is God's definition of love, and it's his requirement of those whom he has saved by his blood shed on the cross for us, even if it requires suffering, going against the grain and losing, even if it requires risking relationships, which happens. Those relationships, trust God with them. We don't need to panic about the strain there. Trust God. They're in his hands. He'll work those out. Even if it requires losing our jobs, which even here in Warsaw, Indiana, happened to one of our brothers in this church in the last two weeks. There is a purge coming down through the federal government of anybody, any Christian who would stand on biblical principles It is here, and it's happening rapidly. This is the world we live in. The truth of the gospel is under attack, but it always has been. This is nothing new for the church. This is nothing new for Jesus or his people. It's just our first time. But Jesus is worth it. Truth is worth it. The words of life are worth it. And all people are worth it. They're worth it for us to stand on truth and love. We must move on. The passage moves on, and we're looking at all the dynamics of marriage, divorce, and singleness that Jesus brings up in this passage. 
So the central question at hand now is with the Pharisees on divorce. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The word joined here means cementing together for permanence. And so that was a quote from Genesis, and that was Jesus restating that. God's original intention for marriage is permanence. They become one flesh. A husband and wife were created, designed to complement each other through emotionally, mentally, spiritually, socially, and physically complement each other. The only way to do that well and effectively is through selflessness. So by selfless service to each other, they complement each other in every way. And because of all of this and a whole lot more, Jesus drew the conclusion of verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, there's a lot more that can be said about marriage. We're sticking with the text here today. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. And that's the point. I want everybody to understand what God is doing in marriage. God is taking two beings that he created and wired to be so different from one another. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. To be so different from one another, and that's the point. Not only are they wired completely differently, but they have their different backgrounds and values and, and, and all those things, beliefs and goals, and he puts them together to join as one. Two beings that are so different to become joined together as one, stuck together permanently, logically and just assumptively means this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. But he does this to show his power, his sanctifying power to us and to the world. He does this. He does this to make us holy. It's the only way marriage works is for us to selflessly serve the other. Just like Jesus, the King of all glory, selflessly entered our world and served us to the point of death. The suffering King who died for us. And in the marriage relationship, we have the most profound relationship to selflessly serve each other like Jesus did for us. He does this. He puts two together in such a way to become one, to provide the foundational building block for a healthy human society and human flourishing. It is the family. It is marriage. That's the building block of all health society, which is why marriage is attacked so hard by the devil and those who either hate God or don't fear God. They want marriage destroyed. God promises his strength to make marriage work. So what can we do? What do we need to do in our marriages to make them work, to glorify God? First and foremost, pray and worship together. That's it. First and foremost, if you're praying together and worshiping God together, it joins you together as you're growing in Christ in a special way. There's a statistic that's, always blown me away, and I love sharing it when we're on this topic, and that is 
you know the percentages of marriages that end in divorce, for both Christian and unchristian. They're relatively high these days. But the husband and wife who pray together at least three times a week, you know what the divorce rate is among those? Less than 1%. Pray together three times a week. Worship together. And you can live selflessly. Everything makes sense. You can get through anything. Pray and worship together. Study the scripture. Study the whole counsel of God. But start with marriage texts. If you need something to do this week together, start with 1 Corinthians 7. Start with Ephesians 5. Be all about prayer and the word of God. Be in a healthy, loving kingdom community in a church. This is the best context in which to raise a healthy family. In a time when identity is so critical, we have the best identity there is to offer the identity in Christ and an identity in his family, a bunch of broken sinners that are being worked on by Christ in his Holy Spirit to become sanctified, to become more like Jesus, to become more like what he has redeemed us to be. So here in the church, we offer things like the art of marriage, uh, the art of marriage class that's meeting right now every uh, Sunday at 11 o'clock. It's not half over yet. Um, so you can still jump in there next week if you'd like to, and it would be a rich experience for everybody. Ask for a marriage mentor. I just heard an interview from a lady who wrote the book, The Marriage Mentor, and she's been married for a long time now and has counseled lots of people. She talks about when they were newlyweds. Uh, she, some of you were all going to resonate with this if you've been married. Um, her husband would, worked in construction, and he would come home, and he would make peanut butter toast on the counter. And she would clean it off every day, every time he did that. And, uh, and finally, that became so bothering to her, she started resenting him. You're messing up my counter. Why do you keep doing this? And one time she just breaks down on the kitchen floor crying and bawling. And he comes in and he's like, who is this crazy woman I married? <laughs> and she goes, it's the peanut butter toast, the crumbs on the counter. And he said, honey, I always did it so I didn't dirty another plate that you had to wash. And it, really, and it dawned on her at that time, we're just different people with different things in our heads. We need a marriage mentor. We've got a lot of those here in the church. If you're young or in some kind of a crisis of any kind, ask for a marriage mentor. And then read some books. There are so many excellent books. We have some out in the Resource Center. You can pick one of those up anytime. We had some friends that got married right around the same time we did about 17 years ago. And one thing they committed to each other was for the rest of their lives, always to be reading a marriage book. Now, that's a really neat goal. And to my knowledge, they have continued that. Some things we can do. And so the Pharisees anticipated that Jesus would oppose, oppose divorce, and so they had a gotcha question all ready for him. That he didn't take the bait. Rather, he takes them to the primary passage of Scripture in the Old Testament law that they had neglected and distorted and he teaches our next main point, which is God hates and regulates divorce. The Pharisees surely had their gotcha face on when they asked this question. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? First of all, they totally ignored his answer about the created order, about the creation. They just ignored it. They weren't out for truth. And they tried to pit Jesus against Moses, who was revered. Tried to pit Jesus against the Old Testament law. 
They're referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. But Jesus saw this coming. He saw it coming a mile away. His first response was to correct their blatant misinterpretation of that law. Moses never commanded husbands to get a certificate of divorce. He pointed this out in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Back to the created order. That was not the original intention. But you see how they use the word commanded, and he's straightening them out. It's an allowance, and it's only because of the hardness of heart. So if you look at Deuteronomy 24 and the Old Testament law, the law acknowledged that men and women in their fallen, weak condition had already been divorcing and would continue. So Jesus corrects them. This was not this exception was not a command. It was only a concession because of the hardness of human heart. And that only on certain conditions, which he gives in the next verse, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. To understand this, it's just like a car. A car is, not, a car is designed to be safe on the road. A car is not designed to skid around on the road uncontrollably and collide into other cars. In the same way, marriage was designed by God. It was made to be a covenant between one man and one woman for life. Not a relationship that could be split up. Moses didn't say, when you drive your car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, he said, when you drive your car, take care not to have an accident. But if tragically an accident occurs... This is how we deal with it. The exception is if a spouse has chosen hard-heartedly sexual immorality with another over the marriage. Thus they have essentially already divorced their spouse in their heart. That one flesh union is of ultimate holiness to God. And breaking it with another is a serious violation not just on your spouse but on God himself. No wonder Proverbs 6.32 says, the one who commits adultery lacks sense and destroys himself. This is also why our holiness and modesty is such a big deal to God. And our sexual purity all the way up until marriage is such a big deal to God. Our holiness in this, this is a big deal to him. So sexual immorality plus abandonment by an unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians 7 are the only two exceptions for divorce. Well, the Pharisees couldn't trap Jesus in that question. They never could. And they took off. They'll be back another day. But now the disciples of Jesus ask him a question as we look at the last three verses. And Jesus is able to assure us of God's grace In marriage, divorce, and singleness. God's grace. Listen, before we look at this, let me just say, the danger of preaching grace is that some people out there are potentially looking for a loophole. An excuse to justify some sinful behavior that you're considering. Jesus says, we're not looking for reasons to divorce or sin in any way. We're longing for reconciliation to occur. Remember, Matthew 19 is directly following Matthew 18, where he just taught that our forgiveness must be 70 times 7. It must be extravagant and unlimited. 
because Jesus forgave us of everything. Then the topic of divorce comes after that. So verses 10 and 11 say, The disciples said to him, now they have a question, a statement. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. The disciples had been raised in a no-fault divorce atmosphere, just like we are today. This wasn't a big deal to get divorced. But Jesus greatly now limited allowances for divorce and increased the sanctity of marriage and holiness before God incredibly high as between one man and one woman for life. So the disciples reasoned, well, maybe it's better to not marry at all. And Jesus replied, no, 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 no. Not many people have the gift of remaining single, and you should pursue marriage. But just give it the work that it requires because it is hard. It's about impossible for those living in the flesh without Christ. But with Christ, we do have grace. So we're going to look at God's grace in marriage, in divorce, and in singleness. And this kind of includes our next steps for today as well. If you are married, you are married by God's grace. Praise God. So love your spouse in a way that portrays Jesus' gospel of grace. Are you loving your spouse in a way that portrays Jesus' grace? Husbands, that means love your wives with a sacrificial love like Jesus loved the church, loves the church, and gave himself up for her. That's you, husbands. Take responsibility for the glory of Christ in your marriage. Are you treating her properly? Are you caring for her diligently? Are you ensuring that she is growing spiritually and cared for? Are you battling temptations that lead you away from purity in your marriage and your thoughts and your habits? Are you battling against those? We're uh, this fall going to offer the excellent Conquer series again for men to develop a battle plan for purity in our lives. It's an excellent thing, and that's going to kick off again this fall. Wives, are you trusting that God... Trust in God that's submitting to your husband's spiritual leadership that he's given them and holds them accountable to? Are you respecting them appropriately as fitting in the Lord, what he says? Are you trusting that following God in that way is God's secret to your growth and fulfillment? Are you fighting against that? Are you honoring Christ through building up your husband, helping him become the spiritual leader that God's called him to be? We will succeed and we will fail a lot. God gives grace in your marriage. And you need to give grace just like Jesus does to your spouse. Definition of grace is undeserved favor. And I tell myself this every time I feel like I'm getting upset. I'm a dispenser of grace in this relationship. God's grace that I've received. Let's look at God's grace in divorce. Last Wednesday in our prayer meeting, one of our brothers prayed, With God there are loads of grace, but there are also guidelines that we must follow. There are both loads. 
Divorce is so painful and so messy that God says in Malachi, he hates it. And so the church must speak this truth from Jesus because it is for everybody's best. But a church can't stay there. It also cares for people who are suffering in a messy marriage or divorce. We need to enter the mess with God's love and truth and help and relationship and support. Let me address God's grace in remarriage. In verse 9, again, if Jesus said, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So if you've been divorced and remarried, you need, to see, you need to see these words closely. He says, and marries another. Him saying that, those words, demonstrates that the second marriage, though it begins on terms that there's probably a need for confession for and to get right before God, is still a marriage. It is a marriage. Once a second marriage has occurred, it would be further sin to break it up. You have now become one flesh to honor God. So to all remarried people here, hear this about God's grace. The second marriage should, be, should not be thought of as continually living in adultery. That is not the right way to interpret this. For the man and the woman are now married to each other, not anyone else. Embrace the full grace of God in this new marriage while pursuing holiness in this hard one flesh union that you are in now. Those are encouraging words. To be completely trapped in shame, thinking that Jesus can never forgive you, is a, is a victory of the devil. And we stand against that because of God's grace. It's so, so amazing. It's infinite. It's inexhaustible. It's more powerful than anything. But let me just say again, the reason God is so serious about this, about our marriage covenants, is because they represent his marriage covenant to us. And he is very serious about it. He will never cheat on us. He will never divorce us. He is always faithful. He will never abandon us. This is the gospel, the good news. And so in return to his faithfulness, we need to be faithful to him, to love him and obey him and to follow King Jesus in return. And now God's grace in singleness. Jesus concludes this passage here, his words here, regarding singles. In verse 12, where he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs have been, who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, without getting into all the particular details of what a eunuch is, what makes one in that set? Let's just call them singles. Okay. In other words, some are single because of a condition since birth. Some are single because they are in the service of other humans. And some are single for the sake of serving Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul was one of those. He remained single so that he could focus entirely on serving Christ. And he says... He identifies this as the gift of singleness. Not many people have it. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's the only thing you're focused on, worried about. You get to focus entirely on the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, how to take, you know, manage the household with her and all those things. And his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. It's purely able to focus how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's making a defense for staying single. If you have the gift of singleness, you can be totally focused on God and serving him and his kingdom. But if you're married, listen, here's the fact. One isn't better than the other. The sanctification difference of being married and single is the same. And you need to understand this. If you are married, that is the way that God is going to sanctify you, to make you more holy like Jesus, to make you more like Christ. Through the fires of being married. If you are single, that's the way God is going to bring you to Christ-likeness. And if you're single, listen, men, Jesus is your helper. And women, Jesus is the head, the, uh, the spiritual head. He is the perfection of both masculinity and femininity. And he's the God of all completion. He can complete you, entirely fulfill you, if you're single. And if you're single after a marriage, whether widowed or divorced, Jesus also can be your all in all. God, 1 Corinthians says, can be your all in all. And I pray that all singles will be so spirit-filled, walking with Christ and being fulfilled by him, that your focus on Jesus in that victory of completion in, in him will amaze you and everybody else watching you. In church... Remember that we are all a family. We're all in different positions, statuses, stages of life, marriage, relationships. We're all messy. We're all messy people. But we're all a family. We have this oneness here. That's the gift of a local church body for each other. So let's pray that the gospel, the grace, and the glory of the Lord Jesus will be displayed in all of our relationships as we care for each other and grow each other.